Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, what international law has to say about the Israel-Hamas war. Pressure is mounting for a ceasefire with a UN General Assembly vote, and as an already dire humanitarian situation in Gaza worsens. More than 18,000 have been killed in Gaza, an estimated 7,500 children, since Israel began its bombardment of the region in retaliation for Hamas's October 7 attack that left 1,200 Israelis dead and some 240 more taken hostage. We learn more about conditions on the ground and whether and to what extent Israel and Hamas are violating international rules of armed conflict. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The WHO's Director General said Sunday, Gaza's health system is on its knees and collapsing. This, as the agency also reports, a dangerous rise in infectious disease from scarce food or clean water, overcrowded shelters, and limited sanitation. Barely functioning hospitals have had to focus on the wounded from airstrikes with few medical supplies. And in a New York Times op-ed yesterday, six leaders of aid groups said they are no strangers to human suffering from conflict and catastrophe, but they've, quote, seen nothing like the siege of Gaza. Joining me now is Beltru, Chief International Correspondent at The Independent, who joins us from Beirut. Beltru, welcome to Forum. Thank you for having me on the program. We really appreciate having you on. Help us understand, based on your reporting, the extent of the humanitarian crisis that's unfolding in Gaza. I know you spoke recently to British war surgeon Tom Potokar, if I'm saying his last name correctly, about the situation at his hospital in southern Gaza in the city, in the city of Khan Yunis. What did he tell you? So, yes, he's a British veteran war surgeon. He works for the International Committee of the Red Cross. And usually the ICRC, which is a neutral body, doesn't tend to talk uh, very much to the media. And so it was quite a rare opportunity to speak to him. And I, he was really surprisingly frank and sounded extremely tired. This is his 14th time in Gaza. He's been in Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, Somalia, operating on the wounded. And he told me this was by far the worst he's ever seen. The descriptions were truly chilling to listen to. He was telling me that there was a, a three-year-old toddler who was a double amputee. So he'd been had his limbs amputated from above the knee. 
and the baby was there with his two limbs in a box next to him. The entire family had been killed except for the father, who was also uh, an amputee from that same airstrike. He talked to me about a 15-year-old girl. One of her eyes had to be surgically removed because every bone in her face had been crushed from another strike. He talked to me about an eight-year-old boy whose parts of his brain were exposed because the skull had been peeled back again in the fighting. And he said one of the most chilling things for him was hearing children screaming in pain from the extensive burns that they were suffering. Some of them have up to 90% of their body covered in burns. They're screaming for their mothers. Yes, and my apologies to listeners. I I should have given a warning about the graphic nature of what you were describing. And so for those listeners, if they do not wish to continue, we completely understand in terms of listening. But Bell, do continue with what you were saying. I'm so sorry. I, I I understand it sounds very graphic. And I and I guess it's just you become because I'm hearing this story every single you know, every day I'm talking to doctors, you almost become not immune to it, but it's just daily life. I'm I'm so sorry to, to offend no, you. No, you have nothing to truly, you have nothing to apologize for. I mean, it was just truly his words. I mean, he said to me that there was children screaming in agony because they didn't have enough pain relief for these severely burnt children. They were screaming for their mums who weren't alive anymore and they didn't have the heart to tell them that so he for him he was saying the sheer number of child injuries coming in and also child fatalities was something that he'd never seen before and the severity of the wounds because we're talking about a very small space it's just 42 kilometers long 15 kilometers wide this is the whole of the of the gaza strip and it's very densely populated more than 2.3 million people live there half the population are under the age of 18 so when you use explosive weapons in such a densely populated area, the injuries are horrendous. So for me, speaking to a veteran war surgeon who works for the ICRC, who's seen everything you can imagine, for him to sound so shaken and exhausted and, and for him to talk so bluntly was extremely telling for me just how bad the situation is on the ground. Yeah. You've also called attention to a letter to the UN General Assembly from the Commissioner General of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees. He's called it the darkest hour in the agency's history. What did he share with the UN about what his agency is dealing with in terms of humanitarian assistance or trying to provide it? Well, I speak to um, his colleagues on a, you know at least every other day about mm-hmm. the situation and you know first of all they say they simply cannot um provide humanitarian aid it's not possible particularly in the north of gaza which um was the focus of the first part of israel's offensive so they actually have forces within the north and the occupy areas um there is now no way of accessing um people in the in the unrest schools there and even in the south now as the offensive has pushed deeper into uh, gaza they are struggling to get humanitarian aid around. Over the course of the last few months, there's been different crises, including not being able to drive anywhere because of the bombing and fuel. But also um, UNRWA, has uh, this UN agency, has lost a lot of colleagues. A lot of colleagues have been killed in this. I, I'm not entirely sure what the exact death toll is now, but it's, I think, over 130 UN staffers have been killed. Um, and that's, you know, yes, that, that was 130 on the 5th of December that's a huge amount of people. That means they're, they're school teachers or they work in their aid programs. And the reason why um, UNRWA in particular is important here is because UN schools are usually places where displaced uh, people, families, civilians in Gaza go to hide. 
the they're usually protected spaces so their you know coordinates are shared with the israelis and in i've this is my fourth war i've covered in gaza um and very, you know usually people who've lost their homes from the bombing will go to the unrest schools and just sh- seek shelter but they're also being hit and they're overwhelmed in the south there's more than 1.8 million displaced people crammed into half of the gaza strip Many of them are sleeping rough outside in the grounds of these schools. There's no water there. There's no. There's running out of food. They have running out of, of medical supplies. So, for the UN, that this is, they said this is the darkest moment in their 75-year history, and that is no exaggeration. First of all, from the fact that they've lost so many staff members, but second of all, from the fact that they are just they can't give the humanitarian support they they need to because it's impossible in these circumstances. We're talking with Beltru, chief international correspondent at the Independent who is reporting from Beirut. And I want to bring into the conversation now David Sheffer, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, also former U.S. Ambassador-at-Large for War Crimes in the Clinton administration, and helped create the International Criminal Court. David, appreciate you being on with us. Welcome to Forum. Thank you very much. And if I might just personally say how moved I was by Bell's reporting, um, In the 90s, I was at many atrocities uh, and witnessed what happens to children who are victims of atrocities, and it left a lasting imprint on me. It's very difficult now for me to witness injury or death to children because of that experience. So I understand completely what she is saying. Yes, I appreciate those comments very, very much. In the conditions that Bell is describing, debate has been ongoing about whether and to what extent those conditions indicate international law violations by Israel. And I do want to go deeper into that. Um, But one thing that experts and officials seem to agree on is that Israel had a right to respond in self-defense to Hamas's attack and atrocities on October 7th. Is that an accurate assessment, David? Yes, and I've been arguing that since October 7th. There's a clear right of self-defense against Hamas for what it it did on October 7th. In fact, so clear a right that, frankly, Hamas has no entitlement to engage in combat with the Israeli Defense Force. In other words, theoretically, Hamas should surrender because it has no basis or justification for self-defense. But one of the weaknesses in international law is that it doesn't quite see it that way once the combat begins between two armed forces. But I just emphasize that to to note the right of, of Israel in, uh, to, to engage in self-defense. There is also a question of whether or not, um, you know, the Hamas as a force is subject to international law because it is not a state. Mm. But that does not matter. Correct, David? Well, correct. And what you've pointed out is what I would identify as a severe weakness in international law. International law needs to catch up with the reality of the world in which we live today. There's a vast complex of of rules and arguments in international law between what is an international armed conflict versus what is a non-international armed conflict, 
what is a state actor versus a non-state actor. There are different rules that apply to each, depending on how you identify them. All of that essentially comes down to a certain level of nonsense, because when one is engaged in the commission of atrocity crimes, whether it be genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, aggression, you're dealing with a level of violence, which international criminal law has identified, particularly for, non -in for international armed conflicts between two states, then there are lots of rules about what you can and cannot do to fighting forces between each other. Then when you muddy it with a group like Hamas, which frankly is a de facto state governing authority in Gaza, sends an entire military force across the border into Israel, it's very difficult to say, well, Hamas is a non-state actor, so let's apply a more narrow set of rules to Hamas, uh, and yet let's have a war with Hamas. It doesn't quite figure under international law. And so um, I've been advocating that Hamas is clearly subject to the rules of an international armed conflict as a combatant force against Israel. But similarly, I've been arguing that Israel is bound by the law of war, international humanitarian law, of an international armed conflict in confronting ha Hamas on Gaza territory. I don't think it can take this kind of easy way out by saying, well, Hamas is a terrorist group, it's a non-state actor, so anything goes in attacking Hamas. I know Israel isn't arguing that, but the impression can be left that it is. And so I would argue against that position. We're learning more about the appalling conditions on the ground in Gaza, and we're talking about the extent to which Israel and Hamas are violating international laws of war with David Sheffer, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and Bell True, chief international correspondent at The Independent. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What questions do you have for our guests about what's happening in Gaza? What questions do you have about how international law applies to the Israel-Hamas war? More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is for Amai Mina Kim. The humanitarian situation in Gaza, which has reached crisis levels according to the UN, where more than 80% of the population is displaced, with food and fresh water becoming scarce, and a healthcare system 
collapsing. We're taking a deeper look at that, and we're looking at growing calls for a ceasefire as well as for Israel to do more to protect civilians as it conducts its retaliatory war and the responsibilities both sides have to minimize civilian death and suffering. We're doing all this with Beltrue, Chief International Correspondent at The Independent, and David Sheffer, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, also former U.S. Ambassador at Large for War Crimes in the Clinton administration, and helped create the International Criminal Court. He's also Professor of Practice at Arizona State University, also Tom A. Bernstein Genocide Prevention Fellow at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. His books include All the Missing Souls, A Personal History of the War Crimes Tribunal. You are listeners are invited to join the conversation. You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum, or you can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. What questions do you have for our guests about what's happening in Gaza or about how international applies international law applies to the war there? So David, even though Israel had a right of self-defense or has a right of self-defense, there are rules based in international law that govern how Israel can conduct its war. Can you talk about that and just remind us generally of the principles it's supposed to adhere to? Yes, I certainly can. Um, Israel is party to the Geneva Conventions of 1948, which are designed to the Fourth Geneva Convention in particular to protect civilians during wartime. Um, interestingly, the state of Palestine, um, as it's a it's a non-member observer state of the UN, also is a state party to the Geneva Conventions. So we're looking at both the needed compliance by Israel of that treaty, as well as the Palestinian requirement to comply with that treaty. The problem is that in international law, uh, and I've been arguing this for for many weeks after the October 7th uh, event, um, uh, atrocity, that um, international law does require a target-by-target analysis. Uh, As you fire uh, artillery and airstrikes into Gaza, you need to make a target-by-target assessment of are you distinguishing between combatants and civilians when you fire that weapon? Is there proportionality? In other words, are you trying to kill just one Hamas soldier while killing 300 civilians? That's not right. Is there military necessity to really strike that location? Obviously, if it's a hospital, no, it's a hospital. Even if some Hamas soldiers are inside, If it's primarily a hospital, you don't strike the hospital directly. And then finally, the principle of humanity, which is just a general principle that you take into account the plight of the civilian population in total. And I think what has happened uh, that is difficult with Gaza is that the Israelis may be able to argue, and I'm glad that they can, if they can, that they're undertaking this rigorous legal review strike by strike, target by target, including on the battlefield itself when tanks are used to hit buildings, etc. You have to have some systemic compliance with international humanitarian law and the law of war while you're doing that. But you also need to kind of take the, the, the view from 10,000 feet and say, wait a minute, what is the totality of are targeting in Gaza. On a totality basis, is this really proportional or not? We need to be careful about that. Obviously, if the end game is to completely destroy all property in Gaza and end up with 25,000 civilian casualties, 
that's a problem under international law. That's not where you want to be going. And so it's it's a weakness in international law in that international law focuses on this target-by-target analysis rather than the totality analysis, which I think is staring us in the face right now with Gaza. Hmm. Even if it does focus on this target-by-target analysis, and that is one way to try to mitigate civilian deaths, how is that even verified? And if Israel, which claims to be verifying every strike to distinguish civilians from combatants, ultimately fails, has it still met its obligation because it went through the verification process? Well, that's one of the issues under international law. Has it still met its obligation? In other words, if it has properly done a target-by-target analysis, and I've, I've been arguing they need to be documenting this every hour, every day, because they will be scrutinized in the aftermath for decisions they've, they're making every single day on targeting. Even if they comply very f- fully with those requirements, we, th- there still needs to be a, a, a more practical assessment, particularly on issues of proportionality, whether the entire conflict as it is being waged on the ground from the air is recognizing the humanitarian impact on the civilian population. And that is another calculus, and it's something you've been hearing a lot of people talk about. Uh, Secretary Blinken has been talking about it in terms of we, th- there needs to be a focus as well on the overall humanitarian situation as you make these decisions for military targeting. That's, that's part of the equation. And international law doesn't really address that. But it's a political reality that, that I think Israel, who has, which has the right of self-defense, Hamas is the enemy. There's no question about that. But this is how you have to develop a very modern and, and humane military policy in how you conduct warfare under these circumstances. Well, Noel on Discord writes, there is a right to self-defense, but Israel has battered Gaza in a disproportionate way. They are using American bombs in civilian areas, but there is nowhere for civilians to go. It sounds like a violation of international law. Bell, I want to ask you about this question of civilians having nowhere to go, this question of forced displacement in the war. The numbers are staggering. Can, can you describe what's happening? We heard Israel deny yesterday that it was intending to push Palestinian refugees into Egypt. Yeah, so to try and explain the situation here, I mean, according to the UN, um, up to 1.9 million people, so that's 85% of the population of Gaza, have been displaced across Gaza. Most of those are in the south, now and we're really talking about areas that are just a few kilometers wide and that uh displacement some rights groups and um, international law experts have, have called forcible transfer which would be a violation of international law because this is not a sort of voluntary movement and it's not an assisted um evacuation that's something that israel deni- it denies but still the point is is that people have been on the move the civilians i've been talking to have often been displaced three to four times because their homes have been blown up they've moved to a shelter that's come under attack they moved to another shelter and now they're in the south and this is where the efforts of this offensive are concentrated and they literally have nowhere to go the israeli military have talked about a humanitarian zone They've called it in an area called Mawasi, um, which I understand is 
really, I think it's 14 kilometers long and one kilometer wide. It's about the same um, size as Heathrow International Airport in the UK. Apologies, I don't have a US equivalent, but Mm -hmm. we're talking about, it's about the size of of an airport, a large international airport. And they said that that's the humanitarian zone that people can evacuate to. But how do you put 1.8 million people in there and doesn't have access to water or um, any infrastructure? It's it's a largely, it's a sort of open area. So people have moved there, but the people I've spoken to have moved there so they're living in tents and they don't have access to, to running water and they're running low on food. So even if you can get to this so-called safe area, it's tiny and it's overpopulated. People also can't move. There are people who are disabled or now um, have injuries because of the fighting or they're sick or they're in hospitals and they're too frightened to move because the bombing is really intense. So they're just sort of hoping and praying from wherever they are. The problem is with Gaza is that it is deeply, densely populated and there is such a high civilian and child population. So any form of intense fighting that uses explosive weapons is going to lead to um, injury and make it very hard for people to move. So at the moment, everyone I'm speaking to on the ground is, is just staying wherever they can. And they say that they are not, they're not safe anywhere. David, I understand that it is not illegal for an invading force to require an evacuation or demand an evacuation if there's going to be a combat situation. But when does forced displacement and also the deprivation or the inability to access food and water and medical supplies, when do those become war crimes? Well, international law does not speak to that time scale. It speaks of more generally. And, and in general terms, one views the request to evacuate as necessarily being a temporary evacuation so that there can be an isolation of the combatants from the civilians and that the the fighting force, in this case the Israeli Defense Force, would be saying to the civilians, disengage yourself from this property so that we can go after the combatants. That's how it works in theory. And I'm sorry, in theory, then you can come back within a very reasonable period of time to to where you live and your homes and everything. But it doesn't work out in that manner in terms of how it's playing out in Gaza. Uh, Israel is talking about uh, a a war that could last for months. Uh, There's a substantial amount of civilian property that has been damaged or destroyed. And uh, there's no plan being presented to actually return civilians to their their neighborhoods. Let's put it that way, because we don't, you know a lot of the buildings are destroyed in their neighborhoods, but at least to their neighborhoods. And so, law doesn't really have an answer to this one. Um, it's it's a gray area in terms of what is the timeline for uh, following through with the return of civilians to their homes. But the requirement is there. It's there's it's not a question of of uh, sanctioning uh, uh, permanent evacuation. That's not what international law calls for. Let me go to caller Eric in New York. Eric, join us. Hi, can you hear me? I can. Okay, terrific. Um, My question was about, um, I don't know if it's a matter of international law. It seems like we're finding a lot of holes in international law, but um, specifically with regards to NGOs, 
and the International Red Cross, what laws apply to them or what expectations apply to them with, re- with respect to visiting hostages, ensuring that uh, um, prisoners are treated humanely. I've heard stories about um, Israeli hostages or families of Israeli hostages who approached the Red Cross with medicine and were re- <coughs> refused the, the right to give their medicines over to the Red Cross to deliver. So just curious about NGOs and the role that they should play and the expectations that we should have for them. I don't know, David, if you want to quickly respond to sort of what are the requirements on NGOs operating in war zones? Sure. Um, Well, first of all, NGOs are not regarded as as the enemy or as combatants. They're not part of the combatant scenario uh, in, in terms of international law. But of course, NGOs take often takes take more risks than civilians themselves do because NGOs are trying to um, uh, monitor, observe, record precisely what they're seeing, and that can put them in great danger. It's very difficult, of course, for an armed force to distinguish between someone who's representing, let's say, Human Rights Watch and a civilian because they're not the human rights person is not in a uniform. So it, there's always a risk there. But NGOs actually accept that risk when they go into an area. They're not expecting any protection that goes beyond what international law provides to civilians during an armed conflict. I will say with the ICRC, they do serve a very, very important objective, which is to be able to deal with both sides of the conflict, particularly in terms of hostages, prisoners of war, the treatment of prisoners of war. So there is a a certain uh, kind of code out there that um, the ICRC is is respected in, in terms of being given the leeway to deal with both sides. In fact, when we were negotiating the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, the ICRC lobbied successfully very hard during the negotiations that they not be required to provide testimony to the court about what they witness in the field in terms of atrocity crimes. Why? Because they need the freedom to be able to be in the field to deal with very tough problems. And as negotiators, we gave them that exemption, that they cannot be hauled before the International Criminal Court as witnesses because their role is so vital. So then it sounds like when that is able to be done, that that those kinds of investigations and determinations could take years after even the war yes. ends? Yes. yes. Uh, the, the, the investigations um, will last for years after this conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to be a lot of scrutiny of what Hamas did on October 7th and thereafter, including continuing to file missiles into Israel. There's going to be an intense scrutiny of the actions of the Israeli Defense Force. And frankly, this conflict is not over yet. So it, it will be years of investigation, uh, just like with Ukraine, where uh, the war continues. But we also know that investigations and prosecutions with respect to the Russia-Ukraine war will last for years and years. Bill, there's been mention by both Eric and David of the hostage and prisoner crisis that's been embedded in this war. You've reported on trauma and impacts on both sides with respect to Israelis who were taken 
or return and Palestinian prisoners who were freed. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you learned in your reporting from speaking with both groups? I think, you know, just in a quick summary, there's deep, deep, deep pain on all sides. Um, to talk about the Israeli families um, of the hostages, it's it was very it's chilling to, to talk to them. I mean, there was one man, thankfully, um, his his um, wife and two daughters who were very young were were released, but you know, he lost his entire family just in in a, in, a, in a second. His wife and his two daughters, who who I think were aged four and five, were taken into Gaza. They were released, but at that time it was extremely painful for him. And he talked about only knowing that his wife was a hostage because her phone geolocated in Khan Yunus in the south of uh, Gaza. So for him, you know, sort of absolutely worst happened. There was also. Um, incredible voices coming from the families of the hostages. Um, I spoke to those whose loved ones had either been murdered on the 7th of October or who'd been taken hostage or who were missing, so they're not sure if they're in Gaza or dead. And they talked about still wanting a ceasefire. They talked about violence, not fixing violence. And I thought that was a really striking and incredible position to come from it. You need a deep world of compassion to go through that level of trauma and pain and still see the suffering of others. But yes, talking to the families, I mean, just, you know, absolutely horrific testimonies of being on the phone to their loved ones. They were being shot or being taken into Gaza or just the absolute chaos of what happened in the kibbutzes on the 7th of October. And the deep levels of, of anxiety for their loved ones who are in Gaza, because, of course, they're also under these airstrikes. And they're also subject to the lack of food and water and medical supplies. And a lot of them were injured at the moment of capture. And so they're really concerned about what, what you know, what was going to happen to them. And there's also some concern about where they are, because from what I understand, speaking to the Israeli officials, Qatari officials who are negotiating, and also uh, families, um, Hamas doesn't necessarily have full control over all the hostages. Um, there's, I believe, to be 240 in total. So there's also worry among the families about those who've been held by different armed factions or even um, factions which aren't you know, officially recognized. They don't know where hmm. they are. So talking to the Palestinian side, Yes, why don't you hold that thought as we are about to come up on a break, but I I would like to hear more about what was happening uh, and what Palestinian prisoners who were freed have told you. We're talking with Beltrue, Chief International Correspondent at The Independent, David Sheffer, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and we're talking with you, our listeners. Email address forum at kqd.org, 866-733-6786, the number. You can find our social channels at KQED Forum. More after the break. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. We're talking this hour about the situation on the ground in Gaza and how international law applies to the Israel-Hamas war. We're joined by you, our listeners, and also by David Sheffer, who is former U.S. ambassador at large for war crimes in the Clinton administration and helped create the International Criminal Court, also with the Independence Chief International Correspondent, Bell True. And uh, Bell, just before the break, you were about to tell us about the detentions that Palestinian prisoners were in. Yes. So I was speaking to uh, teenagers and women who'd been released as part of this uh, truce deal, the ceasefire deal. And they were talking to me about the very difficult conditions that they've been held in um, in Israel and how those conditions had worsened after the 7th of October. They hadn't had any access to the outside world. They um, they said that their personal belongings had been confiscated. They weren't able to see their loved ones. But also what I think was an important thing they were telling me about and human rights groups talking to me about was um, many of them who were released are being held in something called administrative detention. So I was talking to one 17-year-old boy who is in administrative, was in administrative detention. He was part of the release. And that means that he's being held without charge, without trial, potentially indefinitely. Um, and his the, the sort of case against him is a secret file. So he doesn't know what he's been accused of. And this is a, uh, uh, this has risen. The cases of um, administrative detention have surged to unprecedented levels since the 7th of October. So rights groups talking to me about several thousand Palestinians being held in this. Um, and both Israeli um, international and Palestinian rights groups believe it, that it could amount to arbitrary detention, which would be mm. a violation of international law. So for this 17-year-old boy, 17 months ago, he was in his bed at three o'clock in the morning when soldiers burst into his house near um, Ramallah. They arrested him from his bed. He was taken and interrogated for 38 days um, in Jerusalem without, in, in solitary, uh, without access to a lawyer, he said. And then he was put in administrative detention. So to this day, he doesn't know why he was in prison, what the charges are against him. And he has a lawyer, but they don't have access to the files, so he can't fight it. And he could still be indefinitely in detention, but he was released as part of this swap. So I think that's an also important dynamic is, is to the Palestinian families. They don't see their children as or, or their loved ones who are in prison as prisoners um, because they see it as arbitrary detention. Mm. And this is becoming a, a, major, a major issue, according to rights groups, and causing more tensions on the ground. Um, but yeah, I, I spoke to several of those who've been in administrative detention and they said that conditions had worsened since 7 October and they felt that administrative detention was being used almost as a kind of revenge because of the violence on the 7th of October. So their families were obviously very um, happy to have their loved ones home, but that's another dimension to this you know, horrific uh, conflict that's taking place. David, I imagine that international law is relatively clear on hostage takers in war, but how does it address administrative detentions that Bell is describing here? Correct. It's absolutely illegal to take hostages. Um, and that's that's a kind of a no-brainer under international law. As for administrative uh, detention, um, it's, it's not that difficult to uh, uh, see that as arbitrary detention, even if you're calling it administrative detention. And arbitrary detention really flies against the face of international human rights law quite directly. Um, and so that's a problem for Israel. Um, I would, I've never quite heard the, the full explanation from the Israeli side as to the justification for administrative uh, detention 
Um, but it's something that I think, including Beltru's, you know, reporting, points out uh, unless they're transparently explaining what they really mean by administrative detention and under what basis they are doing so, if it's because they are a de facto occupying power in the West Bank, that itself presents a lot of problems for them in that explanation, uh, which I won't go into, but there's a lot of detail behind that. So um, I, I would just say they, they, they haven't uh, passed the, the test yet on explaining how they avoid the charge of arbitrary detention with their administrative detention uh, policy. Well, we have comments also online from listeners coming in. The Cisna writes, Israel should be held to international law, but what about the thousands of rockets Hamas sends into Israel each year? What about Hamas's current resistance against the Israeli incursion and their placement of munitions and artillery under hospitals, schools, and other civilian locations? And we have callers coming in. Amin in Oakland, you're on. Oh, thank you for your guest and opening the line. I'll try to be brief. Um, I don't agree with the human shield excuse uh, because if they could have the woman and children go if. Uh, I mean, I'm so sorry your line is cutting in and out, but it sounds like you do not believe the human shield, quote unquote, excuse as he's used it. David, can you just talk about this a little bit? Because you did mention the hospital. And of course, Al-Shiva Hospital has been a very big deal. How do you interpret that situation where Israel struck a hospital saying that there was, you know, Hamas cell there? Well, um, Israel has every right in self-defense to pursue Hamas wherever it may be in Gaza. The problem, though, is that when you're looking at a hospital in particular, hospitals have a very explicit uh, right of protection under international law and the law of war. So that's that's an issue you have to confront right up front. You can't drop a 2,000-pound bomb on a hospital uh, with hundreds if not thousands of patients, uh, civilian patients in it, that's not justifiable. The, the, what was confronting the IDF, and to some extent, they, I, I think they, 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 they met their responsibility here, which was, no, you can't fire tanks into the hospital, you uh, tank fire, you can't do artillery fire, you can't do air bombs uh, or bombing from the air. Rather, it, you will have to take the risk to go in on foot. If there's a Hamas threat within the hospital, then you have to go in on foot as soldiers to confront that threat. And that is exactly what they, they did. And they found you know, a fair amount of munitions. They identified tunnel openings. Um, you know, so all of that was done without actually destroying the hospital um, and, or, or uh, uh, creating a, a, a sizable number of civilian casualties within the hospital. The, the, what concerns me are the reports coming out that so many hospitals in Gaza have had to close, in part because of the manner in which the IDF is, is addressing the Hamas threat, that the hospitals are literally being closed. Well, at some point, the humanitarian impact of that is very significant if it's not already been reached. And you have to take that into account in terms of how are you waging your combat on the ground in and around hospitals? Are you forcing them to close? And if so, what is the alternative to the treatment that they're providing for civilians? 
All of that has to be calculated in the decision-making in terms of how you wage your combat. Well, Paul writes, if one doesn't support the stated mission of Hamas of the elimination of Israel and Jewish people, then someone has to get rid of Hamas. If you don't want the Israelis to do it, someone else has to do it. I haven't heard of any other country volunteering to do it, nor have I heard countries propose a better way Mm -hmm. to fight Hamas, who does not, quote, fight by the rules. Basil on Discord writes, can you address the Center for Constitutional Rights case filed on behalf of Palestinian plaintiffs? It argues that Biden, Blinken, and Austin are failing to prevent an unfolding genocide where they have influence over the state of Israel to do so, and directly abetting its development with weapons, funds, and diplomatic cover in breach of international law. Bell, can you describe the posture of the U.S. right now toward Israel and how you think it might change or is changing as this appalling humanitarian crisis wears on? I think from the, at the beginning, the 7th of October was such an unprecedented event for Israel and such there were so many hor- horrific scenes that were being shared online Um, and testimonies that were coming out. It was very clear from the beginning that the US was quick to say they were 100% behind Israel, whatever it takes in Israel's rights to defend itself, and showed that both in words, but also in actions, um, including, you know, obviously military aid and support. And for the Palestinian side, I think they saw that as a sort of green lighting Israel to do whatever it takes, in inverted commas, in order to destroy Hamas. But from what I've noticed um, in all the statements that are coming out, uh, in all the briefings, there is growing alarm about the humanitarian situation in Gaza. Before this started, Gaza was already subjected to a 15-year-long siege by Egypt and Israel ever since Hamas, which is a militant group and a designated terrorist organization by many countries, essentially seized control of the Strip. So the supply level in Gaza is already pretty bad and the situation for people living there is was pretty awful before this happened but a total siege was imposed on Gaza in the, and I'm quoting the words of Israeli defense minister and then an extremely heavy bombardment with the ground incursion and that has meant that people are you know uh, not only subjected to intense bombing but have lack of water food medical supplies the situation is catastrophic there's a really high death toll you know, to, to compare it to conflicts, there are many, many people. I've been speaking to um, senior people from, say, the children from the Norwegian Refugee Council from the UN. They all say that the rate of the killing of uh, people is could be unprecedented um, in decades because we've had, you know, according to the um, health ministry in Gaza, 18,000 people killed, among them over 7,000 children. So as that has come out and as we've seen horrific scenes coming out from Gaza, I feel like the U.S., is beginning to get a bit alarmed. And they have said that there needs to be greater protection of the civilian population. And they've said, you know, they really were very nervous about, it appeared that they were very nervous about Israel, particularly pushing down south, because Israel had ordered the civilian population to move from the north of Gaza to the south of Gaza. There was concern if they then continued their offensive that they would see really high numbers um, of casualties, which is exactly what we are seeing. So I think there's been pressure from the US on Israel to try and reduce the impact on the civilians. But the problem is, is that that's really hard to do in this current uh, arena. When you look at Gaza in terms of just how many people are there, how small the space is, there's no safe corridors, there's nowhere to go. And so um, I don't really know how they would achieve that and still could back continuing the war. And we saw in a recent vote recently, um, 
and the UN Security Council were voting on a humanitarian ceasefire that the US vetoed it. And so they've said that they want there to be long-lasting peace. They want to you know, to reduce the impact on the civilians. They want to rectify the devastating humanitarian crisis, but they won't support humanitarian ceasefire right now because that would benefit Hamas. So I feel yes. like that they're maybe divided is the correct word. I'm not sure they know what to do um, because this is an impossible situation here. You cannot continue an operation of this uh, ferocity in Gaza without causing massive um, you know, devastation to the civilian population. And that is yeah. what's happening right now, every well, day. David, what obligation does the U.S. have to use leverage to compel Israel to reduce civilian deaths and casualties and suffering that are so concerning our listeners, especially when the Biden mm -hmm. administration just circumvented Congress to approve emergency military aid mm -hmm. for Israel again? It has a special obligation, not only, I would argue, under law, but more generally, just as a political ally, as a as a ally of Israel, it has an enormous responsibility to step forward and, um, you know, persuade Israel as it as it can to conduct this war in a compliance with international uh, humanitarian law. The issue of complicity um, is a serious one, uh, but in many respects, the United States it says the right things. It it has the the you know dialogue with Israel that says comply with international humanitarian law, don't use these weapons illegally, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we will have to see what the facts show um, as to to what extent did Israel comply with the requests of the United States um, in in terms of how it used this weaponry in the Gaza war. If it used it in accordance with the guidelines of international law then that complies with international law. Um, but it is a very slippery slope, uh, which the United States has to be extremely careful in terms of what it is representing. And when it does provide weapons, such as this latest uh, emergency provision of, 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 of uh, tank weapons, um, what exactly is it requiring of Israel to represent to the United States will be the use of these weapons and for what purpose. Yes. All of that needs to be documented. We are talking about how international law applies to the Israel-Hamas war. This is a fundraising period for KQED. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. David, I just want to know, what are the consequences if there is a determination of breaking international law for either Israel or Hamas? Does Does it have real teeth and real consequences? It can. Over many years, it can. Uh, the International Criminal Court uh, is exercising jurisdiction over the, over the war. And so it looks, of course, at individuals and the responsibility of individuals. This means it looks at basically the leadership, uh, both of Hamas and of Israel, in terms of, of what is transpiring on the ground and then how you attribute that to the decisions of, of leaders. So I think you'll see, um, you'll see indictments come out uh, uh, from the International Criminal Court. That's on an individual basis. I think you'll see some national courts that exercise universal jurisdiction. They'll try to uh, bring some cases against individuals. But in terms of, of, uh, of state responsibility, whether it be uh, the state of Israel or of uh, the state of Palestine, 
That can go on for a very long time, uh, and it can involve uh, international courts of various character, arbitration panels, uh, reparations commissions. All of this is going to, to play out for years to come. So I do think there will be uh, responsibility. Uh, there will be adjudicatory forms uh, that will look at this. But there also may be some negotiated settlements, uh, particularly if one is aiming towards, let's say, a two-state solution or whatever is the end game that Israel and others decide will be negotiated here, that that also will be a form in which redress can be addressed. <laughs> I don't want to say it that way, but <laughs> reparations can be dealt with um, uh, in a way that, um, uh, you know, has the ultimate objective of addressing the needs of the victims of, of, of this war. Well, we have a couple of comments about coverage, and we just have a minute left, but I'd love to get your thoughts, Bell, or any insights. Ami writes, like Mina, I was caught off guard by the graphic details of the horrific wounds described by Bell, but I wish everyone who was in a position to make decisions to fund and supply weapons was required not only to hear hours and hours of these stories, but to see pictures, videos, and even see for themselves in person the impact of the weapons on civilians. Bill writes, are any media outlets in Israel publicizing to their citizens the images and videos of the atrocities aimed at Palestinians? Surely Israeli public opinion would be at least partially swayed by such media. Do you have any insights on this, Bill? And again, sorry, we just have about a minute. Yeah, absolutely. There is some, uh, you know, Haaretz, for example, which is a left-leaning um, newspaper, has done some really important coverage on what's happening in Gaza and has really laid bare some of the more, you know, the more worrying scenes we've seen, like, for example, Palestinian men being rounded up in their underwear and being taken to an undisclosed location, uh, which you know, the Israelis said at the beginning, the Israeli officials said was you know, Hamas fighters, but lots of people there were identified as civilians. So there is definitely a very vibrant Israeli press that is doing this um, and, and portraying this to the population. But I do think that for many in Israel, the 7th of October was a paradigm shift moment for them. And they largely support the Israeli military in what's happening in Gaza. Hmm. And, you know, j just to say at the end, you know, I'm talking to people every day in Gaza civilians, medics. I was on the phone to a doctor just today. It's really horrific what's happening there. I've covered wars for over a decade and a half. This is my fourth war in Gaza and I really have not heard of a pace of killing like, like there is now and the human suffering on such an expansive level. My and Yes, know, my thanks to you, Beltrue, for this reporting, David Sheffer, and to listeners. I mean, Kim, this is Forum. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.